This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Sauroposeidon, slash Paluxysaurus, and a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, and Ray. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all your support, and if you enjoy listening to our show, then please tell a friend, if you know a friend who also likes dinosaurs. Yeah, it really helps us grow if you share with other dinosaur enthusiasts. You can also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino for a list of rewards that we offer should you join our growing community. Yep, we just finished our top 10 dinosaurs of 2017 book. And by we, I mostly mean Sabrina. If you're at the Tyrannosaurus level on our Patreon or above, you get all of our books as one of the perks of that reward tier. So you can check that out on our website, or you can also buy the book the old-fashioned way if you're more into that. (laughs) So jumping right into the news, we have a new dinosaur And it's an ankylosaurine, which are the best kinds of dinosaurs. I don't know about best. You do know. Mm. You can admit it. It's okay. No, I like sauropods. Ankylosaurs are better. So this one... (laughs) Disagree. It's written by Wenji Zheng and others and published in Scientific Reports. And like I said, it's a new ankylosaur. It's from China, from Jinyun, China. And it's called Jinyun Pelta. You can probably see where this is going. So that means Jinyun shield. And there are a lot of ankylosaurs that end in pelta. And pelta is Latin for a small shield. And they say in this paper that it's in reference to the osteoderms found on all ankylosaurians, which I thought was interesting because I always thought of it as like a shield as in the entire back was the shield, but they're specifically saying that it's each individual osteoderm that's like a little pelta shield. So kind of cool. Basically, it's named like all Chinese dinosaurs. You've got Jinyun Pelta as the name of the genus, you know, named after the locality. And then the species name is Sinensis, which means that it's Chinese. So there you go. It's a Chinese dinosaur from a specific part of China. That's what you learn from the name. <laughs> also the shield part, so you know it's probably an ankylosaurian. 
And then I was looking it up because I was like, I'm pretty sure I've seen sinensis before. And there are a lot of different plant species from China that have the species name sinensis. And I think there's another dinosaur too, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, me either. It might be in one of our top 10 dinosaur books. Yeah, I don't think it's an ankylosaurian. I think it was a different kind. But this guy, Jinyun Pelta, was uncovered in 2008 during construction at the Lijin Industrial Park, which is about 200 miles southwest of Shanghai. And they conducted several excavations between 2008 and 2014, which is pretty cool because a lot of times in China, when they discover a new dinosaur, they have like a week to dig it out. Otherwise, construction's moving ahead. But luckily in this case, they had a few years to work on it. I don't know, maybe construction slowed or something and they had a little more time, but that really helped. They said, quote, the 2013 excavation was particularly successful, producing more than five ankylosaurian individuals, though all incomplete. Here we describe two specimens that were collected during the 2013 fieldwork, as the other specimens are still under preparation, end quote. Pretty awesome. So they combined two of the dinosaurs and made this Jinyun Pelta description. So both of those two are assigned to this one. One's the holotype and then another one's a paratype, basically meaning that it's, you know, the same genus, but it's not the actual one that in the future you have to name one individual to compare future finds to so that it's always referencing one individual so you can compare it because it, there's potential that later on someone will say, oh, that other one that you thought was Jinyun Pelta is something else. So you have to pick one <laughs> as the actual definition of Jinyun Pelta. But in this case, they combined a lot of it for the paper because they were both partial finds. And when you combine them, they had almost a complete skull and tail club, as well as lots of osteoderms and a lot of other stuff that's not usually found, like vertebrae, ribs, a shoulder blade, part of a hand, some leg bones and hip bones. So That's a lot. Yeah, it's pretty, especially for an ankylosaur, it's a good find there. And then with the tail club... They had both the handle and the knob. You know, you've got the stiff part of the tail and then the big club on the end of it. When you add that whole length up, it was 131 centimeters or 4.3 feet long. And the knob itself, the club at the end, was 43 by 46 by 9 centimeters or 17 by 18 by 3.5 inches, which the way I imagine this combination is like a 17 or 18 inch rim of a car <laughs> that's a little bit thinner than a car rim. It's only three and a half inches deep and then made of solid bone attached roughly to the tip of the end of a baseball bat. That would be like the size of this thing. And then we don't know, but it could be that the end of the knob could have been covered in keratin or something too. So it could have even been a little bit bigger. So that's a pretty formidable weapon if you can imagine something swinging that at a decent speed. Actually, Jinyun Pelta is relatively small for an ankylosaur. It's only three and a half meters or 11 feet long, so about a third of its length <laughs> is this tail club. It's pretty awesome. Must be a powerful tail. Yeah. And if you're wondering how big it is compared to other ankylosaurs, this guy is about half the length of ankylosaurus. So, yeah, quite a bit smaller. It's officially, according to the writers of the paper at least, the oldest ankylosaur with a quote-unquote well-developed tail club knob, meaning that that big club at the end of the tail is, you know, basically large enough <laughs> to be considered well-developed. 
and that makes it an ankylosaurid. And more specifically, it is in ankylosaurinae, which is the group that includes ankylosaurus, also known as the best group of ankylosaurs. <laughs> it's not the oldest ankylosaurine. According to the authors, Crichtonopelta, without a tail club knob, is just a tiny bit older. And this one's about 100 million years old. So they're saying that these big tail clubs evolved at least 100 million years ago, which is a huge change from what we thought before. Previously, the earliest known was about 20 million years later. So it pushes it back a good chunk of that Cretaceous period. It's also, they say, the first definitive ankylosaurid dinosaur from southern China. In other words, like the first tail club that's ever been found in southern China. So that's pretty awesome. And I really want to know what the other three ankylosaurs are. So hopefully that paper comes out soon too, because I'm very anxious to find out. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got a couple new articles about tyrannosaurs. The first one was published in Cretaceous Research by Chase Brownstein, and he talks about how there are only two known tyrannosaurs from Appalachia, which is that eastern chunk of North America back when it was split in half by that western interior seaway back in the Cretaceous, and the other one being Laramidia, which is where California and Montana and all that good stuff is. <laughs> so the Appalachian founds tend to be a lot less well known and also there are less of them. A lot of them do come from New Jersey and that's where this individual specimen comes from, specifically the Navasink Formation, which is near the Jersey Shore, if you're familiar with New Jersey. And <laughs> that formation is known to be from the latest age in the Cretaceous. And it's previously been named, because it was found quite a while ago, it's called AM&H 2550, meaning that it's <laughs> at the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah, very descriptive. And Brownstein thinks that it might be a new dinosaur. So it was originally grouped with AM&H 2551 through 2553. Also very descriptive. Yeah. And they lumped them all together as one type of dinosaur. And they called that group either a different tyrannosauroid or an ornithomimosaur. They weren't very specific about it, but he went through a bunch of math on the different sizes and shapes of different characteristics of the bone, and he related it to Bistahi Verser, which is the Bistahi destroyer that was found in New Mexico, and he thinks that it's probably closer related to that tyrannosauroid, so it might point to a migration across that western interior seaway from Laramidia to Appalachia in the late Cretaceous. Pretty cool. Everybody likes a good tyrannosaur. Or ornithomimosaur? Hmm. Yeah, he thinks it's a tyrannosaur, though. Oh, okay, got it. But, yeah, I mean, it is just like the very end of a tibia, so it's not, not the best bone to work with, I would say. It's not like there's a big skull and you're like, oh, yeah, it's a tyrannosaur. Chase Brownstein also published a paper in Pure J, which this one's in preprint, which means it hasn't been peer reviewed yet, but I just want to mention it because it's also about tyrannosaurs. Also from New Jersey. Yes. <laughs> he describes a new bone, which may be a proutic from a tyrannosauroid, and that's the part of the brain case that includes the inner ear. So it's kind of like the top front and a little bit of the side of the brain case. 
also known as the brain <laughs> effectively but you know since it's fossilized it's like rock goes into the hole where the brain used to be and fossilizes like the shape of a brain and then you can find it later if you're lucky this would probably be the first portion of a theropod brain case ever found in Appalachia, and it might be Campanian. Maybe it's Appalachiasaurus. It's from that same kind of time period. I don't know. We'll have to see if this gets more information once it's actually published. Seems like Chase has been working on a lot of Tyrannosaur stuff, though. <laughs> and we've also got a new Edmontosaurus baby. <laughs> that was found in montana baby yeah it was published in jvp by Matthias wasik and others one of the researchers is from uc berkeley and the specimen is named ucmp 128181 so cool. maybe it will be on display around here soon that'd be pretty cool <laughs> they consider the find to be a late nestling i guess this was a term that jack horner named back when he was looking at myasora or something and that means it's about 14 kilograms it's a pretty tiny dinosaur for comparison a quote-unquote freshly hatched <laughs> hadrosaurid the estimated would be about one to four kilograms so it's about 10 times that size and the previous smallest juvenile edmontosaurus was at the los angeles county museum weighed about 700 kilograms, obviously much bigger, and a full-sized adult would be about 7,000 kilograms. So a 10 times bigger once again. And then in tons, in case you're not familiar with kilograms, an adult would be 7.7 .7 tons, the Los Angeles juvenile would be about 0.77 tons, and then the baby in Berkeley would be about 0.015 tons not even really useful to measure it in tons at all no <laughs> the researchers say it's the first occurrence of an articulated nestling dinosaur skeleton from the latest cretaceous also known as late maastrichtian of north america so it's like the oldest baby if that makes any sense yeah or youngest baby i guess <laughs> youngest old baby <laughs> it is pretty well preserved they got Pretty much the shoulder through the base of the tail and the top of the foot. So it's sort of, if you imagine like a lot of dinosaurs are, its tail and its head are sort of in a straight line horizontally. And then the leg goes down perpendicular and then at the knee it bends straight back. And then you cut it off before it gets into the toe bones. So they got like that chunk of it, kind of a rectangular slab. Unfortunately, that means there aren't any forelimbs, but they say the hind limbs appear to be isometric. I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up. It's the opposite of allometric, which is how humans grow up. And by that, I mean babies have very different proportions to adults, at least in humans. You know, babies, if you scaled up a baby, it would have a huge head <laughs> compared to the rest of its body. Mm -hmm. Whereas adults, you know, we have relatively much smaller heads and you know, other proportions change as well. But with this Edmontosaurus, it looks like the bones were effectively the same size and proportions as the adult. And we've talked about that before with sauropods, how they just look like little tiny adults. Yeah, they do. Which might actually make them less cute because they wouldn't have had like big cute eyes. They just had little eyes matching their little heads and all that kind nah, of stuff. Nah, they're still adorable. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so the, the seven Montessori, the reason they were so interested in it is they were trying to either substantiate or negate the theory that baby Edmontosaurus would have run on their hind limbs because that's been proposed in the past. It's also been proposed for sauropods. But they think since the hind limbs look the same in this, you know, barely hatched juvenile, that that means that the body didn't change much throughout its life and it was always set up to be quadrupedal. Like Ducky. I thought Ducky was bipedal. Oh, you're right. Yeah, so not like Ducky. The like opposite Spike. of Ducky. <laughs> or Littlefoot. <laughs> I was thinking because Ducky was a hadrosaur. Yeah, I never knew it was a hadrosaur. Maybe that's why. But Spike and Littlefoot were both quadrupedal, right, when they hatched. So yeah, like those and two. Sarah. Yes. So they would be more isometric, and then they portrayed Ducky as allometric. <laughs> there we go. And they also followed up by saying that the researchers said that they want to do a biomechanical analysis to sort of demonstrate how it might have walked rather than just looking at proportions. It's really unfortunate they didn't have those forelimbs because that seems like the key. If the forelimbs were underdeveloped or looked different, that's when you would think it was quadrupedal. If the hind limbs look the same, it doesn't seem quite as informative. But I guess if you look at how the hips are formed, you might be able to, with a biomechanical study, see how what kind of range of motion it has. Like if you, it could rear up high enough to even be bipedal or something like that. We'll have to see what they do. But maybe there'll be a baby for us to go look at. That'd be nice. It would be. The fossil isn't that cute, though. That's too bad. We'll use our imaginations. Yeah. So, jumping into museum news, on March 24th, the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum will be hosting a fossil forum. They're going to have mini lectures from six experts, including Dr. Ava Kopelhus, Robin Sissons, Wendy Sloboda, Dr. David Evans, Dr. Jordan Mallon, and Dr. Philip Curry. And topics include women in paleontology in Alberta, fieldwork in Alberta, and the Canadian dinosaur rush. Hmm. It costs $30, starts at 9.30 a.m., goes till 3 p.m., and you get lunch. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, that's a lot of really cool people who will be talking. Next, we've mentioned it before, but currently Dippy the Diplodocus is at the Dorset County Museum from now until May 9th. And also on display with Dippy is a collection of art called Naturally Curious. It's the work of four artists inspired by fossils, and it includes a 13-foot or 4-meter mural based on Dippy. And paleo artist Mark... Witten gives more details in his blog post. He's one of the four artists. I wonder if it's 13 feet or four meters. That's not really life size. But it could, since it's isometric, be like Dippy at a younger age. It's not just Dippy. It's a mural with Dippy. Ah. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> in Philadelphia, the Academy of Natural Sciences recently had a Paleopalooza festival. And in honor of the festival, Shane Confectionery and Franklin Fountain created this fossil-inspired candy for attendees to try. And they made dinosaur eggs, bone-shaped fondant, and pieces of giant cookies shaped like dinosaur jaws. <laughs> they also had, they called them herbivore and carnivore-flavored ice cream. And the herbivore one was like, lemongrass and the carnivore one had something called uh lapsing sochong tea which i don't i don't know hmm. that i've had that does it S taste like meat smoked turkey and alligator meat oh so yes it did taste like meat that's in the ice cream yes oh no that sounds interesting you can make 
all kinds of cool flavors. I do not want meat flavored ice cream. It might be good. I don't know. But they also had a Hadrosaurus chocolate skull to commemorate Hattie, which makes sense. Mm. And looking at that picture really made me want chocolate, but only in dinosaur shape. <laughs> That's a very specific craving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In Minnesota, the Science Museum is hiring for a paleontologist for the Fitzpatrick Chair of Paleontology, the department director and curator for the paleontology department in their science division. And we'll post a link if anyone is listening and is looking for a job. In the other news, in Queensland, Australia, there's an old gold mining town that's looking to reopen their caves that have dinosaur footprints. The footprints are actually on the roof of the caves, which sounds really cool, but the caves have been closed for seven years because there's been a number of rock falls, so it's kind of dangerous. And the dinosaur caves used to be a major draw for tourists, which makes sense. They were found in 1952 during a gold rush and then confirmed to be dromaeosaur footprints by paleontologists in 1954. So the Queensland government is researching the mines to make sure it's safe for the public. And one way may be to use drones to see, I guess, how the rocks are falling or something. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. They probably, I wonder if they'd be flying drones seems like that'd be tricky to do in a cave <laughs> anything's tricky in a cave yeah seeing is tricky in a cave <laughs> yeah they got lights yeah i was just imagining because i've flown drones a little bit i'd be bashing into the walls of the cave and then and then the only way to get it up again would be to like go down and pick it up or send another drone in after it and then you know they all just pile up and then you're just covering up the dinosaur footprints with piles of drones that <laughs> keep breaking when I run them into the wall. Yeah. In Jacksonville, Florida, Jacksonville Zoo and Gardens has dinosaurs again. It's the Dinosauria exhibit. It's open from now until July 7th, and they have 21 life-size animatronic dinosaurs. They've got T-Rex, Triceratops, Spinosaurus, Carnotaurus, Therizinosaurus. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. You don't see that one too often. They also have a dinosaur-themed spring camp from March 19th to 23rd if you're in the area. I don't know what that entails, but it could be fun. Not digging for dinosaurs, I can tell you that much. Because they're in Florida? Yeah, (laughs) because it was definitely underwater. (laughs) (laughs) In Derby, Kansas, Field Station Dinosaurs will be opening up at the end of May, which will be Memorial Day in the U.S., and to get people excited, Ruth, an 18-foot-tall T-Rex replica, is in downtown Wichita, Field Station will have more than 30 life-size animatronic dinosaurs on 14 acres, and they recently had a job fair. I don't know if they're still hiring or if they got it all done in that job fair, but it could be fun. We have some Jurassic World news now, and I guess this is a spoiler alert. Sabrina does not like spoiler alerts. Well, I, I don't know if this one is a spoiler alert. It is. The Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom released a video of Claire Deering, Bryce Dallas Howard, promoting a dinosaur protection group. It's a short video. It's only a little over a minute, and it references other Jurassic Park movies, which is cool. And it's got a really commercial documentary-ish feel. Doesn't really know how to describe it because those two seem like very different things. But (laughs) you've got Claire talking to students about dinosaurs and so that feels like a documentary-ish. And then they show clips from the movies, which I guess is what made it feel like a commercial. So hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I still don't know if that counts as a spoiler. The fact that she started a dinosaur protection group is definitely oh. news that some people might not want to know before oh. seeing the movie. Okay, okay. 
Next, thanks to Allie who shared this one with us via email, Universal announced a Pokemon Go-style Jurassic World game called Jurassic World Alive. And in the game, you build a collection of dinosaurs and you create your own hybrid dinosaurs and then you fight them in battle. And apparently you don't have to leave your house to collect dinosaurs. There's going to be this in-game drone that you can use to collect DNA Mm. because the developers wanted to give people more flexibility and, quote, something to do at home. (laughs) There's going to be 100 dinosaurs to start with regular updates, and you can already pre-register for the game. Garrett, you don't sound too pleased. With the drone aspect? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am really excited about the game, though. I pre-registered, and they give you, like, some kind of free... You don't even know really what it is when you sign up because you don't know how the game works. There's not very much information, but it's something like get a free DNA piece or something, Hmm. which might be really hard to find or very easy to find in the game. I don't know. But the thing is with Pokemon Go, there's a lot of people, this is an ongoing debate about whether you should be able to play it from home. And what I've found from playing Pokemon Go is that it's a lot more fun when you go out and you play it with other people and it encourages you to go outside and get some exercise and kind of go explore new places. So if they do a drone thing, then it's basically like any other app on a phone where you're pretending to walk around and sitting on a couch. So hopefully it doesn't let you go too far or maybe there's a time limit per day or something. Maybe they'll experiment. Yeah. I hope that's not a major part of the game, though. <laughs> we'll find out. That'd be a bummer. But I hope the, the little bit you could see of the intro of the game shows like dinosaurs popping up, kind of like Pokemon Go, but it looks really janky. So I hope it's better than it looks <laughs> on that one. They might be testing right now. Yeah. It's made by a completely different developer than Pokemon Go. So that that's Niantic. I forget who's making this game. Oh, so then they have to start from scratch. Yeah. So we'll see how well they do. I'll definitely play it, though. <laughs> Next, Nurture Rights and the Natural History Museum in London are working together to produce a new series called The World of Dinosaur Roar. Which, it's cool that a museum is getting in on this. The idea is to teach preschoolers about dinosaurs. So in addition to books, there's going to be a sticker book, domino set, jigsaw puzzle, and toys. Is that supposed to be like dinosaur lore, but roar? (laughs) I don't know. I hope that that's the pun they're going for because I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe as a preschooler, you like to roar. Could be. Yeah. Kids do like making noise. Thanks, Aiden, for this next one, sharing this with us via Facebook. So Aiden posted this awesome photo of a dinosaur park themed board game called Dinosaur Island. And the, the caption that went with it was dripping with 90s nostalgia and dinosaurs thought of the podcast will plague, which nice. Thank you. <laughs> so it sounds like a fun die with friends. I looked it up. Uh, the picture that we saw looks like it's the 1994 version. And there's also a newer version from Pandasaurus Games that was successfully kickstarted. And in the game, you collect DNA, re- you research DNA sequences, and then you combine them to bring your dinosaurs back to life. And the dinosaur pieces in the game are pretty cute. I especially liked the pink sauropods. So it's kind of like the board game version of the new Jurassic World Pokemon Go style game. A little bit. (laughs) Oh, and it did come out a year after Jurassic Park. Yeah. Interesting. How did they come up with this DNA sequences for (laughs) recreating dinosaurs idea? In Durham, North Carolina, there's something called the Durham Brontosaurus, speaking of sauropods. It's this 77-foot-long 
brontosaurus made of concrete and plywood, and it lives near Durham's Museum of Life and Science. It was made back in 1967 as part of what was then the Bowl City's Children's Museum, and that was part of a prehistory trail with a number of creatures. I think brontosaurus might have been the only dinosaur-y one. Hmm. But it was wiped out by a hurricane, the trail, and now pretty much all but the brontosaurus is gone. Hmm. So in 2009, vandals stole the dinosaur's head, and then the local community paid to repair it, but now it's not clear what's to be done with this brontosaurus. I think it just kind of sits across from this museum, but it could be fun to visit. Yeah. I wonder why they're worried about what to do with it. They just leave it there. Maybe it's falling apart. Yeah, like they're not sure who should repair it kind of thing. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. It's 2009. That's a long time to just be... Out. Out. Yeah, you gotta re- at least repaint it or something. Yeah. Also in North Carolina, but in downtown Raleigh, there is a pink T-Rex. It's actually the mascot of a tech startup, something called Pendo, which recently moved headquarters, and they've got this pink T-Rex on a pink platform, and it looks pretty cute, pretty cartoony. <laughs> <laughs> and the company is encouraging people to take selfies with it, so if you are in Raleigh. Makes sense. Yeah. If I had a company, I'd encourage people to take selfies with my logo, too. Yeah. (laughs) And last, this is another pink dinosaur thing. A lot of pink dinosaurs this week. Clothing store Topshot is selling a pink t-shirt that features a drawing of a sauropod and the word vegan underneath. Which, like, it's pretty cute, but (laughs) ever since I read that post about, well, maybe sauropods ate turtles or whatever they could to get protein so that they could grow large enough as quickly as possible, I wonder how vegan they actually would have been. Almost certainly not vegan. Yeah. Because we, we talk about the opportunistic herbivores eating small animals when they get a chance, so... Yeah. Yeah. True. But cool shirt. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. (laughs) Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Sauroposeidon slash Paluxysaurus, which was a request from the Dark Moo, Dino Row, and Dinosaur 4602 all via YouTube. So thanks. This is a complicated story, so I'm going to start with <laughs> Sauroposeidon first. Sauroposeidon, the name means earthquake god lizard. It was named after the Greek god Poseidon, who's associated with earthquakes. It lived in the Cretaceous in what is now the U.S., the sauropod. Fossils and tracks have been found in Oklahoma, Wyoming, and Texas. And it was described in 2000 by Wadel, Cefeli, and Sanders. The holotype was found in 1994 at the Antlers Formation by Bob Cross, who's a dog trainer. And Dr. Richard Cefeli and a team from the Oklahoma Museum of Natural History excavated it later that year. The first sauroposeidon fossils described were four neck vertebrae found in Oklahoma near the Texas border, and each vertebrae was really long. The longest one was 4.6 feet or 1.4 meters. Oof. Yeah, and the vertebrae have these tiny air cells and are thin, which is what made the neck lighter and easier to lift. And made room for those sweet, sweet air sacs. Exactly. But... Since these were so large, at first, they thought that the fossils were too large for any animal and were instead tree trunks. <laughs> but, in fact, they're actually the longest known dinosaur neck vertebrae bones. <laughs> cool. So Matt Wadle, who was then a grad student, and we actually interviewed him in a previous episode all about sauropods, he analyzed the vertebrae in 1999 and realized that no, these aren't tree trunks. <laughs> so they sent out a press release, and it got a lot of media attention, which led to a lot of inaccurate headlines of the largest dinosaur ever. <laughs> it was probably the tallest known, but it's definitely not the longest or heaviest, especially now. Yeah. But anyway, Wadle said, quote, Sauroposeidon was an unexpected discovery because it was a huge gas-guzzling barge of an animal in an age of subcompact sauropods, end quote. <laughs> Not many sauropods have been found in North America from the early Cretaceous, and most of them were shrinking in size, so that made Sauroposeidon stand out. The type species is Sauroposeidon protellus, and Sauroposeidon was so large the ground probably shook when it walked, so protellus means perfect before the end in ancient Greek. It refers to Sauroposeidon being the last most specialized sauropod known in North America from the early Cretaceous. It was originally thought to be a brachiosaurid and closely related to brachiosaurus and giraffe titan. So Sauroposeidon's size is based on comparisons with vertebrae from the giraffe titan specimen in Berlin's Natural History Museum, which is the most complete known brachiosaur, even though it's a composite. So Sauroposeidon's estimated to be, from what I could find, 112 feet or 34 meters long and weighing about 50 to 60 tons. It could reach up to 59 feet or 18 meters high with its neck extended. So that means it probably ate from the tops of trees. Its neck is estimated to be 37 to 39 feet or 11 to 12 meters long, based on the assumption that it has the same proportions as giraffe titan. Hmm. But it had a more gracile neck than giraffe titan, and if the rest of its body is just as slender, then it might have weighed less, especially if it had an air sac system, as Garrett was talking about. Yeah, it sounds like it did if they found pneumaticity in the vertebrae. Mm-hmm. 
So the fossils found in Oklahoma show that it lived in an environment similar to modern-day Louisiana, humid with river deltas, bayous, and lagoons. And now I'll move on to Polexisaurus. So there were Polexisaurus specimens from the Twin Mountains Formation in Texas, including a partial skull and tracks that were previously named Polexisaurus jonesi and are now considered to be a junior synonym of Sauroposeidon. And they were reclassified in 2012 after a reanalysis by Michael Demick and Brady Foreman. So Demick and Foreman also reclassified additional specimens found in the Cloverleaf Formation in Wyoming as Sauroposeidon. And these show Sauroposeidon may be more closely related to titanosaurs than brachiosaurids. Hmm. At least seven individuals have been found between Texas, the Twin Mountains Formation, Oklahoma, the Antlers Formation, and Wyoming, the Cloverleaf Formation. These all now considered sauroposeidon specimens. The Demic and Foreman suggested that sauropods from the Cloverleaf Formation were referable to sauroposeidon based on shared derived characters of a juvenile cervical and the sauroposeidon holotype, and that Poluxisaurus from Twin Mountains Formation was not distinguishable from the Cloverleaf sauropod and had the same characteristics as the Cloverleaf sauropod, which makes Poluxisaurus a junior synonym. There's also tracks that have been found, and some paleontologists think that the footprints from the bed of the Polexi River in Texas are of an Acrocanthosaurus stalking a Sauroposeidon. Ooh. So now Sauroposeidon is thought to be a basal Sampospondyl titanosauriform instead of a Brachiosaurid, which makes sense because it had some similar features and other basal Samphospondyles, such as Erkatu and Chiawanlong, have similar cervicals to Sauroposeidon. So that mixes up our whole idea about comparing it to Giraffatitan. Yes. And Matt Wadle has accepted all of this in one of his blog posts on Sauropod Vertebrate Picture of the Week. He seemed pretty thrilled that people were working on this and figuring it out, so that's cool. It's always cool when more dinosaurs get added to the one that you named. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So let's go back to Polexisaurus for a minute. Before becoming a synonym to Sauroposeidon, Polexisaurus was actually mixed up with another sauropod, Pleurocelus, which just adds more complication. So Pleurocelus was found in Maryland in the late 1800s, and the bones found in Texas were thought to be the same dinosaur that when Polexisaurus bones were found and described in 1974 by Juan Langston Jr., only Pleurocelus was known from North America from the early Cretaceous, so they grouped them together. Hmm. Pleurocelus was named in 1888 by Charles Marsh. Its name means hollow-sided, and it lived in the Cretaceous. It's not well known, only by partial skull and postcranial bones, and it actually may be a synonym of Astrodon. So Polexisaurus, then Pleurocelus, was found in a bone bed in the mid-1980s by students from the University of Texas at Austin, but work stopped on it in 1987, and the quarry didn't reopen until 1993. All of the sauropods in that bone bed looked to be the same genus. And they found a partial skull, including teeth, a partial neck, vertebrae from the back and tail, limb, and girdle bones. There were four individuals found in that bone bed, and they think that the bone bed may have been due to a flood, especially since petrified logs were found there, so they may have been washed down river. Pleurocelis became... <laughs> the official Texas state dinosaur in 1997. But then in 2007, Peter Rose and others named the bones found in Twin Mountains Formation in Texas Poluxisaurus jonesi. 
and Polexisaurus, as you may have guessed, means Polexi River Lizard. And Polexisaurus jonesi was named for the town of Polexi and the Polexi River, which are near the Jones Ranch site where the fossils were found. Uh-oh. Yes. So then in 2009, Texas passed a resolution to amend the state dinosaur name to Polexisaurus jonesi. And Fort Worth Museum of Science and History celebrated the name change by creating a full restoration of Polexisaurus, and it was a composite of all four specimens. Cool. So I've since looked up the current Texas state dinosaur, and it's still listed as Polexisaurus, even, even though it's a junior synonym of Sauroposeidon. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is initially Polexisaurus was thought to be similar looking to Brachiosaurus, but the reconstruction gave a lot of insights. So they found 60 to 70% of the bones needed to reconstruct Polexisaurus. And they found it had slim teeth, which it would have used to grab food, and it was built light. It had a long neck and tail that was nearly as long, as well as long front limbs, which made its back more level. And it had wide hips and a high shoulder. And also the estimates were a little bit different from the ones they found for Sora Poseidon, about 70 feet or 21 meters long and weighing up to 20 tons. Also, these dinosaurs lived in a semi-arid environment. But anyway, full-grown adult Sora Poseidon would have probably been safe from predators, but juveniles may have been prey for Acrocanthosaurus or Deinonychus or Utah Raptor. And other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place include the sauropod astrodon, <laughs> just adding to the confusion, and the ornithopod tenontosaurus, and other animals included amphibians, reptiles, fish, crocodilians, turtles, and early mammals. So long story short, there's a dinosaur. It was originally called Pleurocelis, then it got renamed to Paluxisaurus, and finally that one was synonymized with the previously existing Sauroposeidon. Yes, but the Texas state dinosaur is still Paluxisaurus. I wonder if Texas will ever rename that because Paluxy is, you know, so Texan. Yeah. That now that it's this dinosaur that's from all sorts of different places, not even originally named from Texas, makes it a lot less exciting for them. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Oklahoma should make their dinosaur a Sauroposeidon. <laughs> <laughs> they can battle it out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. And our fun fact of the day is that humans and ground-dwelling birds are essentially the only living animals which spend their entire adult lives walking and running bipedally or on two feet. Ooh. So I say ground-dwelling birds because <laughs> obviously... Regular flying birds spend a lot of time flying, although while any bird is on land, they are all bipedal because they can't use their wings <laughs> to walk like pterosaurs might have. And then there's also some apes and lemurs that are also primarily bipedal while they're on the ground, but they spend a lot of their time in the trees, so they don't spend that much time walking and running. And then there are also some other animals like kangaroos, rodents, and lizards that switch between bipedal and quadrupedal locomotion, but a lot of times they can't walk or run bipedally. They do one or the other, or like kangaroos hop. So yeah, ground-dwelling birds and people are pretty much the only ones that just spend our days walking and running. thought that was pretty interesting and fun and a fact. <laughs> Is it fun? We don't hang out in trees or fly. <laughs> but it's nice to be able to walk. I like walking. Yeah. On two legs. 
And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to uh, tell your fellow dinosaur enthusiast friend. Take a listen if they're into dinosaurs. Or multiple friends if you have lots of dinosaur enthusiast friends. Yes. Bonus points. And if you want to join our growing community, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.